on the opening night of this retreat, which I'm sure in some ways seems like a very long time ago, I quoted the Chinese tradition, which has the saying, if you want to understand the nature of water, look at the waves. So tonight I'd like to talk about some of the most intense and tumultuous waves that we experience, which are classically known in this tradition as the five hindrances. You may feel you have more than five, but um, these are very broad categories that tend to point to our most common tendencies of getting lost, losing perspective, getting disconnected from our own selves in a way. Sometimes it feels like our practice is little more than the play of these five hindrances. They are desire or attachment, aversion, which is anger and fear, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. That's the five. But even so, they're not called hindrances because they are a mark of ruination, (laughs) that when we experience them, even if we experience them quite a lot, It's not a sign that things have gone terribly wrong or that something is inherently wrong with us. But rather, these are the the exact challenges that we tend to face in life. And so they do tend to come up very strongly in an intensive retreat situation like this. As with everything, the key is how we are relating to them. Some years ago, a friend had rented a house for some of us to uh, do kind of a self-retreat And when I moved into the bedroom that had been designated mine in the house, I saw that somebody had left on the desk a comic strip from the Peanuts comic. And in the first frame of the strip, Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, you know what your problem is, Charlie Brown? The problem with you is that you're you. And then in the next frame, Charlie Brown looks at her and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And somehow in the days to come in the retreat, whenever I was doing walking meditation, my eye would fall upon that line. The problem with you is that you're you. And I understood how he might have felt at that moment. The tremendous challenge we face in going deep within and really looking at everything is not to get caught in that kind of identification. And so I talk about these five hindrances very much in that spirit. If you find that it sounds like a practically blow-by-blow description of your practice, that's fine. The first of the hindrances is the state of desire or grasping or attachment. Sometimes we experience that as if-only mind. If only I'd brought another sweater. I would have been enlightened by now. If only something else had happened. If only I had thought to make that phone call before I left, everything would be fantastic. The nature of grasping or desire is that it takes us away from a full appreciation 
and even a frank enjoyment of what is actually happening takes us away from that into a projection into what is not actually here and fixates on that as the resolution, the singular answer to our unhappiness. Some years ago, I was uh, teaching in Israel, and I had a few weeks before the retreat actually began when I was just staying in somebody's apartment there and going around and exploring. And one day, we were walking in Jerusalem in the old city. It was a very peaceful time. And we were walking through the marketplace, which is a series of very narrow alleyways with just bursting with sights and sounds and goods for sale. It's a very vibrant, vivid place. And we're just walking along through this network of narrow alleys when one of the merchants called out to me, I have what you need. And it was this fantastic moment. It's like I stopped, and this thrill went through my entire body. (laughs) And I thought, wow, he has what I need. So I started to turn toward him and to go for it when I had the thought, wait a minute. First of all, I don't need anything. And second of all, how would he know he has what I need? But really, we hear that voice calling out to us all of the time in this society. I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And we believe it so much. One consequence of that is that we get very tired because we go after one voice and then the next and then the next. It's quite exhausting. Another consequence of that is that we internalize that message so that we feel, I do not have enough, I am not enough, I exist in a state of of deficit, of deficiency, of want. And so we're constantly seeking. It's not that desire is unnatural or it's, it's strange somehow to feel it and something to be abolished. But we have to look at the nature of that kind of restless seeking, that unceasing wanting. So we're always looking. We become so disconnected to what is actually here. Once I had this funny experience where um, we were at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton had been. And the conference was organized around the presence of the Dalai Lama, who was there for most of it. He had arrived a little bit early and had been given a tour of the monastery. Then the first night, the opening night, he gave the opening talk, and it was a somewhat august occasion. There was, PBS was filming it, so the television cameras were going, and there were all of these dignitaries from these two different religions. And, and we were just sitting there, and uh, as he does sometimes, he began with his formal speech, and then he just deviated off into this spontaneous message. And he started talking about his tour of the monastery, He said how impressed he was that the monks there were self-sufficient, that they completely supported themselves through manufacturing different different items like cheese and fruitcake. Then he said, when I got the tour, they gave me a piece of of cheese, but they never gave me any fruitcake. (laughs) And he said, it was really too bad. I really wanted some fruitcake. And he laughed, and he said, really unfortunate. It was so unfortunate. 
And it was so funny. I actually, I leaned over and I said to this bishop who was sitting next to me, do you think he could get him a piece of fruitcake? <laughs> what was so amazing was that clearly his deepest sense of happiness did not depend on getting that piece of fruitcake. In some ways, his deepest sense of happiness was probably more connected to his ability to laugh at himself, to express his desires with that kind of childlike innocence in front of dignitaries from two different religions and a television audience. To be that open, that unbound by the desires that arise. It was really a wonderful example. It's not that the arising of the desire is unnatural or needs to be judged or held in contempt, but how fixed do we get? How much do we reject what's actually happening for some dream of what isn't even here? How much do we compete with others and feel separate and apart from them as we fix on this mysterious object or goal that we think will bring us final happiness? How much do we reject the truth of change as we try to hold on to the pleasant experience that actually does come our way? It's not that we don't enjoy it. But how much do we cling, trying to keep it under our control, our dominion? The Buddha had a very homey example for this, as he often did. He said something like, when people hold on to objects that must inevitably change, it's like someone holding on tightly to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle, you're bound to get run over. It's just going to happen if you're holding on tight. Everything changes all of the time. So can we find a quality of happiness that isn't going to be destroyed if the pleasure fades, that isn't going to leave us guarded and defensive, trying to hold on to what will never stay? When I was first practicing in India, which was in the early 70s, the whole beginning part of my meditation practice was, was very, very painful. I had never meditated before ever, not even for one minute, when I went into this 10-day meditation retreat. It was physically very painful. It was emotionally very painful. But I felt tremendous faith in, in the process, and so I kept practicing. I kept practicing. And there came a period of time where everything sort of lightened up in my experience, and most everything I was experiencing was very pleasant. I would sit down, and it felt like I was just floating in the air, and I'd have all of these serene, lovely mind states happening. And right away, I got attached. I started thinking, oh, isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life in exactly this state? And I'd have these fantasies, not that I was ever planning on coming back, but I thought, well, maybe I'll come back in 10 years for a visit. You know, I'll go back to New York, and I could just see myself floating down the streets of New York with a beatific smile on my face in exactly that same state, because I was sure it was never going to change. But then in 10 minutes or 20 minutes, sometimes 5 minutes, something would happen. My back would start hurting, my head would start hurting, I'd have a less pleasant mind state, it would be gone. All that lovely, serene enjoyment. And right away, I would blame myself. I would think, what did you do to ruin it? You made it change. You know, did you breathe too hard? Did you do this? Did you do that? 
But of course, it wasn't my personal responsibility. The experience didn't change because I had done something to ruin it. It changed because everything changes all of the time. It's just the way it is. That's the way life is. We can enjoy the pleasure fully and not get attached, not cling, which is something extra. And so we see this come up so much in meditation because it comes up so much in our lives. And coming here is not, as you know, inducing a state of blankness as much as we might want that sometimes, but it's the very clear seeing of many, many tendencies that we have and learning how to relate to them in a very different way. So that's desire or attachment. The next is almost like the energetic opposite. It's aversion, which includes anger and fear. Interestingly enough, in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, anger and fear are exactly the same mind state. They're not even two, two terms. It's like the same thing. It's two forms of the same thing. Anger is the outflowing, energized, sometimes explosive form of it. And fear is the withheld, frozen, imploding form of it. But it's the same energy of striking out against what's happening, saying, I cannot bear for this to be the way things are. I cannot bear for this to be the truth of things. It's also based on a subtle or sometimes not so subtle belief that we should be in control of the unfolding of the world. And this also, I think, is reinforced tremendously in our culture where suffering is considered so abhorrent, it's so unnatural, so that we are taught to reject it and to reject others, lest their suffering dampen our delight in life, and to reject ourselves for being fragile enough to have things go wrong. And so it's not unusual in our society to find people who are sick, people who are old, people who are dying, to also be living under the burden of almost a kind of personal humiliation. Like, I should have been able to stop this. If I really was on top of things the way I should be, according to television, then this would not have happened. It's a very continual message that we get. And so when... Discomfort comes, pain comes, fear comes, an unpleasant state comes, we are very highly trained to try to push it away, to feel that it shouldn't have happened, that we must somehow separate ourselves from it. So of course what we're doing is separating from some very continually arising elements of life. We're separating from our own lives. Here again, it's not that the state of aversion is unnatural. It's not that it's wrong or that we need to judge ourselves terribly for it. But we also do need to understand what happens when we get lost in it. What happens when we are consumed by that state? I once had kind of a funny experience where, um, kind of a contemporary story, I was um, just sitting at my computer and I was doing email and I got an email from somebody who asked me, what do you think about anger? And so I wrote back saying, well, one of the problems with anger is that when we are lost in it, we tend to put people in a box. 
And then I, I got offline. You know, what I meant was that we put people in a box in that, whether we're looking at ourselves in anger or somebody else, our view tends to collapse. It becomes limited to that terrible mistake or that unfortunate incident or whatever. And the fact that change is possible doesn't enter our minds. The fact that there are many angles to the truth does not enter our minds. Everything shrinks down to that certainty. That is who I am and who I always will be, that terrible person. Or that is who you are and always will be. So I got offline and I was still at the computer. I was working on something else when something went terribly wrong in the relationship between my computer and my printer. And this is my desktop, so I got down on my hands and knees and I'm pulling out plugs and I'm plugging in other things and I was really angry. First of all, I was really angry at my friend who was um, the computer assistant here who was away on vacation. And my mind went into a rant, like, how can you be gone? How could you have abandoned me? You know, at this very time when I'm doing this important thing and, you know, it's all falling apart. Completely forgetting that, and this is the truth, the reason he was on vacation was because I had insisted he go on vacation. I thought he really needed a vacation. I had actually gone to the airport to give him my frequent flyer miles so he could get away. But it's like that knowledge was eradicated in my anger. How could you be, how could you have left me, you know, to face this on my own? And I was really angry at myself. Part of my rant was, why can't you be the kind of person who can fix this sort of thing? You're so inept. Meanwhile, I fixed it. You know, but I hardly took a moment to appreciate the fact that I could fix such a thing. I was just lost in that mental state. So I got back on my chair and I kept working on what I was working on. And then after some time, I got back online and there was my uh, email correspondent saying, I don't understand what you mean by when we're lost in anger, we put people in a box. So I said, well, <laughs> I wrote back and I said, this is what just happened. You know, I put him in a box, I put myself in a box. It's not that the anger is a, is a contemptible state, but we really need to look at the consequences of how deluding it can be, how we can get so lost in it, our world can get so small with very few options. And fear is just the same. When was the last time you were really afraid and your mind opened to many possible options that could be resolutions to the problem? No. Everything shrinks. It's just the nature of those mind states. There are many positive things about anger in a way. It's very energized. It can lead us to say no, to be definite, to stand up for ourselves, to stand up for others. But when we are lost in it, it is incredibly destructive to ourselves and to others. The Buddha likened it to a forest fire. He said, anger is like a forest fire which burns up its own support. So it can leave us devastated. And like a forest fire which just burns wild, it might leave us very far from where we actually want to be. So the challenge for us becomes how to, in a way, utilize that energy but not be lost in the deluding, limiting, tightening quality that can also be part of anger. The third of the hindrances is sleepiness, which is known in the trade as sloth and torpor, or dullness of mind, delusion of mind. 
And this, of course, is a very common experience in practice. It happens for many different reasons. Sometimes we are practicing and we get very, very sleepy because we're tired. You know, we're actually exhausted from all that running around (laughs) that we do in life, following those voices, if I have what you need. Or for whatever reason, we can actually be extremely tired. Sometimes it's more intricate than that. We feel very sleepy, very dull, just overcome by dullness in our practice because something is starting to emerge that is quite difficult to look at. We're afraid of it. We're uncomfortable with it. And so it's a very common tendency as a way to cut off, just to go to sleep, to fog out. Sometimes sloth arises or sleepiness arises because our experience is basically neutral. It's not strikingly pleasant. We're not riveted to the feelings that are coming up, the sensations in the body. And it's not strikingly unpleasant. We're not really challenged. We're not brought to our edge by what's coming up. It's just ordinary. It's the sight. It's the sound. It's the breath. And because for most of us, we're not so highly trained to be really attentive, to be wholehearted, to be full with neutral objects, we're really rather dependent on intensity to come alive. We need to have that intense pleasure or intense pain to actually feel connected. And so it's a whole huge training to be present to be full when experience is basically neutral. And there's a lot of neutral that actually comes our way. When I was first practicing in India, my very first teacher didn't emphasize the technique of mental noting, but then my second teacher did. So when I was working with him, he suggested that we try to make a mental note of our predominant experience throughout the day, whether we were sitting formally, walking formally, standing, lying down, walking around, taking a shower, whatever, just to really try to be aware and to make a mental note. So I was living in this compound in India, and one day I was just sort of wandering around the, the garden, and I realized that the single most frequent mental note that I was making was that of waiting. I was just kind of wandering around going, waiting, 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 until finally I said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized I was waiting for something to be striking enough or important enough or significant enough for me to note it. And that I was basically living my day, which is really an example of living my life, as though I were a tape recorder with the pause button on. And so we can be. It takes tremendous intention to actually open up, to open up our world so that we're in touch, we're connected, even when experience is neutral, that we don't just go to sleep. To keep coming back, to pay attention, not to get lost in that kind of seeking of intensity, Sometimes we get very sleepy in practice 
because there's so many delicate balances going on all the time. I know many of you have heard us tell the story about how when we first came to look at this place, trying to decide whether to buy it or not, we were persuaded by uh, what we saw downtown in the town green etched upon the monument, which was the Barry Town motto, tranquil and alert. And so we thought, okay, you know, there's our omen. We're going to go ahead and buy this place. It's a perfect description, not only of meditation practice, but of some of the most delicate balance that happens in meditation practice. Sometimes what is really being emphasized is the tranquility side of things, the letting go, the ease, the gentleness, the calm. Sometimes what's being emphasized is the alert side of things, the attention, the interest, the investigation, and so on. And often these two flavors of practice are not really being developed in total harmony, in total balance. If the tranquility side of things is cooking along and the alert side of things or the energetic side of things is not quite matching it, then the first thing that happens is we tend to fall into this kind of dreamy, drifty state. We're just kind of floating along in our sitting and and then that turns into a sort of oozy state, and, and that happens for a while, and then we might even like that a lot, you know, because it's all right to ooze along, and, and then we fall asleep. It's not a bad sign because it is a reflection of the tranquility side developing, but it's not really in balance, it's not really in harmony. We might experience that very often. The next hindrance, again, is like the energetic opposite of that, and that's the state of restlessness, where the alert side of things is kind of up, and we're interested, and we're enthusiastic, and, and that grows stronger and stronger, but there's not enough tranquility to match until our minds are just filled with thinking about you know, building a center, and writing a book, and writing another book, and you know, just constantly, the energy is just exploding. Sometimes the restlessness can be very physical. It does feel like there is so much energy. It's like the energy of the universe is just moving through our bodies, and it's too much. It's really much too strong. Sometimes it is more in the realm of thought and feeling. And it's powerful to investigate the ways that this can happen. It can happen through obsessive planning where we sit down and we plan something through and we come to this nice resolution by the end of the sitting. We get up, we walk, we sit down, and we do it all over again. And we just do it and we do it and we do it. I think it's almost as though that we have this feeling inside that if we can only plan something thoroughly enough there will be a kind of security that it really will happen that way, that we'll be in control, finally, (laughs) of the unfolding of events. And so we plan it and plan it and plan it. When I was living in India, there came a point when I decided I was going to live in India for the entire rest of my life, which, of course, I did not. But I really wanted to see that happen. And so I would plan it continuously, 
In those days, it was quite difficult to get an extended visa. Mostly people could be there for a certain period of time, and then they had to leave. So I would sit down, and that was my my obsessive planning. How am I going to get the next visa? And then the one after that, and then the one after that. So I'd sit to meditate, and I would think, well, next year when I need a visa extension, I'll go to that town over there because that's really close, and and they'll be very sympathetic to Buddhist meditators because, after all, you know, it's, it's kind of a Buddhist area. And then the year after that, when I need a visa, I'll go to that town over there because that's so remote. Nobody ever goes there. You know, that'll probably be a good place to go. And the year after that, when I need a visa, I'll go to that other town because I've heard that people there are really corrupt, you know, and I'll be able to bribe the visa official. And then the year after that, when I need a visa, I'll go over there. And then the bell would ring, and I'd get up, I'd walk, and I'd sit down, and I'd have to do it all over again. Just this intense agitation and restless planning constantly. And finally, I did two things that were very helpful to me. One was, I said to myself, you're not even in India while you're in India. All you're doing is planning about staying in India. Why not experience India while you're in India? Which was actually a very good thing, because I didn't end up being there for the rest of my life. And the other thing I said to myself was basically, what are you feeling right now? Because underneath that continual run of thinking, there was a fair amount of anxiety. I wasn't going to get what I wanted. I wasn't going to make it come to pass. Things weren't going to work out for me. I wasn't going to get any help. I mean, there were all kinds of things happening in the level of feeling. So I basically needed to not get lost or spun out in the restless thinking and come back to my more direct experience. Sometimes the restless, obsessive thinking isn't about the future, but it's about the past. And here, as we talked about a little bit in the Metta course, there's an interesting distinction that can be made in the Buddhist psychology between what might be called remorse, and what might be called guilt. As a basis for morality, the Buddha said something I found quite beautiful. He said, if you truly loved yourself, you would never harm another. And when we recollect, as we often do in meditation, these memories just start coming of things we did or things we said or times we should have said something and we were really too afraid when we remember times that we broke the harmony of life in some way, it is a reflection of not having loved ourselves enough in some sense. And so it's very painful to feel that. That's remorse. It's feeling acutely sometimes the pain of that that rupture, that separation, that disconnect. But with remorse, which is considered a skillful state, we feel the pain We recognize it for what it is. In some way, we're able to forgive ourselves and move on with the energy and the determination not to do that very same thing again because we have learned from that pain. With guilt, which is considered unskillful and a kind of lacerating self-hatred, we get stuck. We go over and over and over and over that incident. It's really a kind of anger or hatred for ourselves. And so our attention collapses. It's got all that tunnel vision of anger where we fixate. And so we don't leave that experience with any energy. 
we're depleted, we're exhausted, we can't forgive ourselves, and we're just stuck there. This is who I am. This is all that I will ever be. That, as I said, is not considered skillful or wholesome at all because it doesn't give us the energy to move on. It's very, very common for those kinds of memories to arise in practice. It just seems to happen that way. We get so sensitive. We do become more aware. And it's a kind of purification almost as, as these things come up. Once again, how we relate to them makes all of the difference. Sometimes those feelings come up even when the incident doesn't seem to be on the face of it so very terrible, but it has caused, caused that kind of separation. I once had this funny experience where uh, Joseph Goldstein and I were both practicing in Burma, and we were seeing our teacher, Saito Upandita, six days a week for interviews. And the way that interviews, which are done individually, where you describe your practice and you get some advice, the way they're done there is that you go up to the front of the room, basically, to talk to the teacher, and whoever's turn it is just next is waiting in the back of the room. So they hear your whole thing for however long you're there. And then, uh, you know, someone is always behind everybody. So Joseph happened to be just ahead of me. So we were there for like three months, so six days a week. I was listening to his, his practice experience. And somewhere early in the course of that period, I could tell just from his tone of voice that um, he wasn't having a really chipper day. And, and uh, he said to Upandita, I just had this really, really painful memory come up of something that I did and at that point. Um, must have been like 25, 30 years before. He said, it's something that I did that was really wrong. And I was sitting in the back of the room, and we had been quite close friends for 15 years at that point, and I was sitting there thinking, gee, I wonder what he did. <laughs> you know, it sounds really bad. Um, you know, and Upandita heard him and heard the pain he was in and basically gave him advice around the distinction between guilt and remorse, that you need to feel the pain, be able to let go, have a more expanded view of yourself and your own potential, and move on. And Meanwhile, I'm sitting in the back of the room waiting my turn, thinking, I wonder what he did. <laughs> but I couldn't ask him because here we were on this intensive retreat for months yet to come. The day we left, we left Burma together, flew to Bangkok. We are having dinner. I think it was that very first night, and I looked at him and I said, by the way, <laughs> when we were, you know, practicing there, and that day you went in to talk to Upandita and you described you know, how terrible you felt about some horrible thing you had done. What did you do? And he described this time when he had been like 16 or 17 years old, and one of the young girls in his um, crowd had her sweet 16 birthday party, and he didn't go. He said there were a lot of people who had had a whole run of these parties in a row, and he was really kind of tired of them, and he just didn't go. And then it turned out that not many people went to her party. And 30 years later, in the middle of Burma, it came back. And it was so painful for him to feel how she must have felt. So then, some years after that, when I was writing 
my book, A Heart as Wide as the World, I wanted to use that as an example. So I called him and asked his permission to tell the story. And he said to me, what point are you trying to prove with telling the story? So I said, well, I want to talk about how we can feel this tremendous pain come up over just a little thing. And he said to me on the phone, it wasn't just a little thing. It really hurt her. I next told that story. I did use it in the book, but I next told that story when we were teaching together in California, and it happened to be my birthday. And then after I gave the talk, the staff of the retreat center gave me a birthday party, and Joseph walked in and he said, I didn't really want to come. (laughs) He said, I'm really tired. (laughs) But I figured in another 30 years, you know, I'll be meditating, minding my own business, and it'll come back. So he came. So these memories do come, these thoughts do come, but we can learn to relate to them much more skillfully and not fall into that really incredible restlessness, I am so bad, and, and so on. And then the last of the hindrances is the state of doubt, which has some similarity sometimes to restlessness. Doubt is a very interesting quality because there are aspects of it that are considered really very good. They're very positive, especially in the Buddhist tradition where the Buddha himself is so famous for having said, don't believe anything just because I say it. Don't believe anything because an elder has said it, because someone you respect has said it, because you've read it. He said, don't believe anything. Put it into practice. See for yourself. He would use examples and say things like, put it into practice and see if it leads to the lessening of grasping and aversion and delusion in your life. Then you can trust it. Put it into practice and see if it leads to the extension of love and compassion and joy in your life. Then you can trust it. And on and on. Put it into practice. And if you feel like your life has been such that you've been sitting in front of a wall and the wall breaks open, and you can see clearly, you can see in a more expanded way, you can trust it. But the essence of that message is put it into practice. We need the kind of doubt which, in a way, is an insistence on seeing the truth for ourselves. It's knowing that we have the right to see the truth for ourselves, that borrowed knowledge will never be the same as self-realized understanding. But to do that, we actually have to put something into practice. We have to come close to a process. We have to surrender. We have to take a risk. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're standing back in order to judge, in order to feel superior. Sometimes it's like restlessness. Sometimes it's a quality of fear. You know, we don't want to take the risk. We don't think we'll ever succeed. And so we'd rather stand apart and be cynical and feel protected in that way because we didn't have to try. There's a quality of doubt known in the teachings as skeptical doubt, which is considered unskillful in comparison to the kind of doubt which helps us really want to see the truth for ourselves, that allows us to question, to investigate. Skeptical doubt is the very quality of mind that pulls us away from a process so that we're not putting it into practice. We're not really letting the truth speak to us. We're insulating ourselves and isolating ourselves, separating ourselves. 
One of the strongest experiences I had of that was somewhat early in my practice, pretty early in my practice, where the first teachers I sat with were all either Burmese or had been trained in Burma. So there were different approaches stylistically or in terms of technique, but they weren't really that different. They were really very close. And then there I was living in India, and somebody showed me a picture of a Tibetan Lama, and I was very taken with his face. And so I traveled all the way to the other end of India to start practicing with him. And then I got really confused. I would sit to meditate, and mostly I would just think, should I do this or should I do that? Maybe that's faster. Maybe this is better. Well, I like those people better who do that practice, but then again, I don't know them really well. I know these people really well, and so, you know, they're doing the best they can, so maybe I should do this, but I don't know, maybe I should do that. So I wasn't really putting anything into practice because I would just sit and think about it having removed myself from the process to some safe distance. And what was almost worse was that whenever I was with my Burmese teachers, I would ask them what they thought about Tibetan practice, which they knew nothing about. They'd spent an entire lifetime completely, intensively devoting themselves to the study and practice of Burmese lineages. They knew nothing about Tibetan practice. And whenever I was with my Tibetan teachers, I would ask them what they thought of Burmese practice, which they knew nothing about having existed on the other end of that great historical-cultural divide. <clears throat> so I wasn't really learning anything from my practice, since I wasn't really practicing. I was just thinking about which practice to do. And I wasn't really learning anything from my teachers, because I was insisting on asking them about the things they knew least about, as compared to the things they knew a lot about. Until finally, I said to myself, just do something. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. Just do something for the sake of the doing, for the engagement, for the involvement. Because every spiritual path is like an invitation to really put it into practice, to see for ourselves what is true. We have to come close. We have to take the risk. We have to try it out in order to, to do that kind of seeing, that kind of learning. So I said, well, I'll just do one for six months which got me into actually practicing. It's not that one needs to do only one practice, I don't believe, forever, and I certainly didn't. But it's a good example of that quality of doubt, which removes us, sets us on the crossroads, and keeps us there, rather than being able to fully engage. We need to be able to utilize the the positive energy of wondering, of wanting to know the truth for ourselves, and yet not get lost in that kind of cynicism or endless speculation. One of the gravest kinds of doubts is is self-doubt. When we get lost in the conviction, well, it's worked for 2,500 years, but it's hit its wall in me, you know. It's like everybody can do it but me. I think one of my favorite examples of that is actually the legend of the Buddha's enlightenment, his own enlightenment, where he, then known as the Bodhisattva, being who's aspiring to to freedom, 
with the understanding that his freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of all beings, um, goes to sit under a tree, the descendant of which still exists in Bodhgaya in India. Bodhisattva goes to sit under a tree with the determination to become free and is attacked by this legendary figure known as Mara, the killer of life, the killer of virtue, who wants to dissuade the bodhisattva from that aspiration and so tries basically to get him to give up in defeat. And he attacks him. They're called the armies of Mara. He attacks him in all these many ways um, with lustful images and with ferocious images and rainstorms and hailstorms and all kinds of things so that each time, with each separate attack, he's hoping the bodhisattva will just give up and go away. And finally, the very last attack of Mara is basically that of self-doubt. He says to the bodhisattva, by what right are you even sitting there with the thought that you can be free, that you can be awakened? From New York, we would say, he basically says to him, who do you think you are, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to think that you can do such an immense thing, that you can really break the bounds of your conditioning. Who do you think you are? And in response, the Bodhisattva, in that very famous um, gesture, like in the statue behind me, reaches over his knee and touches the earth. He's calling upon the earth itself to bear witness to all of the lifetimes in which he has practiced generosity and morality and compassion and effort and lifetime after lifetime so that in a way he's saying that he has been swept to that moment on a wave of a moral force which has given him a complete right to be there. He has the right to want to be free. He has the right to that aspiration. And so that the earth shakes bearing witness to the truth of his right to be there, his right to be happy in a way. And Mara is vanquished, goes off into the night, the bodhisattva sits through the night and is enlightened at the first morning star. It's such an incredible example of the, the attack of self-doubt. By what right do I think I can be happy? Sometimes when I teach metta and we use the phrase, may I be happy, people say, well, you know, I hear the tone of voice in which I'm saying it like, May I be happy? No way. There's a tremendous amount of that that we can experience. But to be able to get underneath that, to reach down, to touch the earth, to realize that, yes, all beings universally want to be happy. One way we all have the right to be happy, that our urge toward happiness is appropriate. It's in some way the most beautiful thing about us. It's not wrong to want to be happy. The problem is not that that aspiration. The problem is that we often don't have a clue how to be happy. And so because of ignorance, we might often create suffering for ourselves and for others, but we do have the right to happiness, all of us. It's not just one person. It's not just myself. It's all beings. And so opening up to that and really taking delight in that is a a very important 
transformation on a spiritual path. So here we have it. We have attachment, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Many, many waves that arise in the mind. But as I said, it's really all right. Everything depends on how we hold that. Do we get lost in identifying with these states? This is who I really am. Do we get lost in fighting them, trying to battle with them? Or can we let them be there and learn from them? To understand the nature of water, look at the waves. We can understand a lot from looking at these states. The nature of ignorance, the nature of freedom, nature of letting go, nature of change. If we allow ourselves to use all of these states as objects of meditation, rather than be consumed by falling into them or trying to push them away. I'll close with a story from um, this friend of mine, Sylvia Borstein, who uses it as an example of the five hindrances. The first part of the story is actually a true story. And the rest she makes up as a way of just describing the hindrances um, in a fun way. Part of it that is a true story has to do with a student of hers who one day went out to go to work. She left her apartment in the morning. She went down to unlock her car and she had this sudden thought, you know, the car seems a little lower to the ground than normal. So she looked down and realized to her shock that all four of her tires had been stolen. And her immediate response, this is the part that's true, was to go off about a mile and a half. She walked to a shopping center to buy herself a pair of silk pajamas as a way to comfort herself. It was kind of like a soothe, you know. And then having soothed herself by buying something, she could go home and call the police. So that Sylvia uses as an example of desire, the force of desire. And then she goes on. She says, well, you know, what's it like if this person goes down, tries to go to work, sees that the tires have been stolen, and gets furious, you know, starts hitting the car and kicking the car and punching the car and yells at the superintendent, you know, why didn't you pay more careful attention, and then goes off to work and is feeling so terrible inside herself that she just wants to spread that around, you know, and just kind of gets angry at everyone else as well. It just seems rightful that she not be the only one suffering. And then there's the person who might tend to be slothful. And this person goes to their car and discovers that their tires have been stolen. And right away it goes back to her apartment and says, well, you know, I'll just take a nap. You know, I can't deal with this right now. If I just nap for a little while, I'll get some rest. I can cope later. And then there's the person prone to restlessness. Because restlessness can manifest as this kind of fretfulness and agitation. One aspect of it is, is a state of anxiety. And so when that person prone to that, discovers that her tires have been stolen, she might start fretting, you know, and building a whole world, a terrible world in her imagination, like, well, you know, today it was the tires, and tomorrow it'll be the car, and the next day I'll be kidnapped, and 
you know, and on and on it goes. And then there's the person prone to doubt. And that doesn't mean that we're all just prone to one, you know, but that day that person is prone to doubt. And here it might manifest in that situation as the kind of self-doubt. You know, why do I always make such poor choices? This is all my fault. Why did I park here? Why do I live in this neighborhood? This must be all my fault. Not knowing what to do except blame herself and blame herself over and over again. She feels confused about what to do and stuck. Can't take any constructive action at all. So sometimes we experience one of these at a time. Sometimes we experience the intertwining of many of these in what we sometimes here call a multiple hindrance attack. You know, we want to go out after the first morning sitting and buy some silk pajamas or blame everyone we encounter for our problems or go to sleep or we get really fretful or we get full of self-doubt. It's really natural, one or all. But if we learn how to apply the quality of mindfulness to these states, if we can be mindful of them rather than be driven by them, then we can have tremendous expansiveness of mind. And even in the face of these very old patterns, we can learn how to be free. So let's sit together for a few minutes. 